At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world, a fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. Do you ever wish that you could have a definitive, clear, ultimate, like just absolutely exceptional word of God about your life? Just a very, very clear statement from God. When, when I think of a dis- definitive statement or a word, that's, that's a declaration that not only describes reality, but it also frames truth. A definitive statement tells us what is, and it also builds a, a structure around which truth can flourish from. And, it, and it's something that pushes us forward into a desired future. There, there have been many de- definitive statements throughout history, but I think of, in American history, a few definitive statements that just stand out to me about who our country is and, and how we have been fashioned, as it were, uh, that I think will give you clarity on this. So I think all the way back to the Declaration of Independence, and there's the, the definitive word and statement of American life there. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's how we think of America. That's, that's our framework, our truth, our reality for it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, he also gave a definitive word in the Gettysburg Address, and that definitive word is on what I might call American fortitude. He stated at the end of his address, we are here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And again, a very clear definitive statement. But then you could fast forward 100 years into the future from Abraham Lincoln's day to one more definitive statement speech. And I'm thinking of Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 address on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, his I Have a Dream uh, statements where he framed American justice and equality. And he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. These definitive words are clear. They're full of truth. And they create the reality that we live under today. I think they're indelible words that shape even the future and shape the world. And wouldn't it be nice? These are, these are incredible statements. But I think wouldn't it be great if we had some kind of statement like that, some sort of ultimate word or definitive statement from God about our own lives today? Something just as clear, just as framing, just as hope-giving as those words might be. 
Well, if I told you that those words didn't exist from God or that we're still waiting for him to deliver them, I think you'd be rather disappointed uh, today. And you'd say, what is going on? What is happening here? But that is not the case at all. I believe that the early Christian church even wrestled with the same desire. We want to hear specifically and clearly and ultimately from God. So, so the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, he begins this, this statement, this sermon, I think it was, positioning us with that desire. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God is a speaking God. He is a communicating God. And so the, the writer looks back and he says, back in the past, long ago, you could say in a galaxy far, far away, it feels like, but long ago, there is God and he's speaking. But he's, but he's speaking in many times and in many ways, in various places, in various times, and he's speaking by the prophets. There, there's avenues and channels and people that God is speaking through, but it was in varied form and fashion and messengers. Sometimes God's message came through a prophet. Another time, his message came through a dream or a vision that someone had to share. Sometimes he spoke from a burning bush or from a donkey even. God's word was multiplied in various and in many ways. Occasionally, an angel would deliver God's word. But it never seemed that it was complete and definitive. Never that, that ultimate statement of God. And so the question was raised, would God even continue to speak? There were periods of time when there seemed like there was no word from God at all. Hundreds of years, centuries where, where God didn't speak. And the question was raised, would he remain quiet? How could his people clearly know him and his ways? Well, the straight answer for us today that, that even the writer of Hebrews will announce to us in just a moment is that God has given a definitive, ultimate word. There, there is a declaration from God that is ultimate and supreme, a word from God that is absolutely definitive. It describes reality. His word frames truth, and his word pushes us into a brilliant future. And that's what the writer here suggests. He points to, he says, but in these last days, in verse 2, in these last days, in the, in the here and now, the end of time, he, God, has spoken a clear, definitive Singular word. He has spoken to us by his son. The declaration is that in the here and now, in these last days, God has clearly, definitively, ultimately spoken to us by his son. That, that is, God has said everything he needs to say about the universe, our times, and our lives by Jesus Christ. If I could say it this way, Jesus is the definitive, ultimate word from God. This morning, I want to invite you in to, to open your ears. I want to encourage you to, to perk them up and, and to listen and to, to allow your heart to listen. As the Bible so often repetitively states in the book of Revelation, let the one who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. I would like to invite you to listen and to, to hear God's ultimate word today. God's word, his definitive word for your life. And that word is Christ. That one speaking is the Son of God, Jesus. 
Now, I know there might be some pushback to that, to say, if I'm to say to you, listen up, like, that's how we're going to get forward in this life. That's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to draw near to God. You can say, well, wait a second. I don't know if I just want a word. I don't know if I just want to open my Bible and and hear of Christ there. I I would like, many of us have been conditioned to desire to, to, to want to see supernatural activities. We want to go through emotionally heightened experiences We desire from God to see wonders and spectacles that dazzle our eyes and and overwhelm our senses. I mean, many of us today, if we could vote, could say you could have a clear definitive word of God in the word of Christ, or you could have a burning bush speaking to you. And many of us would go, I'll take the bush, you know, like I'd rather see the fire. Furthermore, we would push back and say, wouldn't it be better to have the miraculous signs and the grand activities of the divine to drive away any speculation or question? I mean, let's see the supernatural so that there is no more reason to question or to guess. Maybe perhaps we're a lot like the people of Jesus' day that are always asking God for a sign rather than listening to his ultimate definitive word. I want us to hear God's ultimate word. I want us to hear the Son of God. And to do that, I believe I have to help us by answering the question, what makes Jesus the Son of God? What makes him God's ultimate definitive word? Why should we listen to Jesus as the ultimate word of God? Well, let me give you three, what I believe are compelling reasons to hear God's ultimate word this morning. As I invite you in to listen to Christ the Son I want you to think about these reasons, about the superiority and the, the supremacy, the definitiveness of Jesus for us in this passage. Reason number one here starts at the beginning. We should listen to God's ultimate word, the Son of God, because Jesus is God's creating word. Jesus is God's creating word. So in verse 2 he says, in these last days, he, God, has spoken definitively, clearly, ultimately, to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, now this should impress us right away, because what, what this preacher here is saying is that we're not getting the definitive word of God from a second-hand or a third-hand source. We are being spoken to by God himself through the Son. God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it implies a special and unique relationship that I'll speak about in just a moment. I'll elaborate on the the reality of Jesus as the Son. But notice here that the writer tells us about the prominence of the Son. God, first of all, has appointed him heir of all things. He pushes us into our desired future and he says, There is one who will receive all things. Who is the heir, that is, he is to inherit. He is to take on. He is to have all things culminate in him. The Son of God is the one who has the rights over all things because he is the heir. He is the one to whom the Father will hand the kingdom and the power and the glory. He is Lord over all. All things handed over to him. He inherits all things. All things culminate in him. And that pushes us to the end of time where Christ is the fulfillment, the culmination consummation of all things. But then the writer does something and he takes us to the very beginning of time. He starts us at the very beginning 
And, and he says, here is why Christ is the one in whom all things will culminate, the Son, because he is also the one through whom also he, God, created the world. Christ is the one, the Son, who made all things. He, he is the one who created the world at the word of the Father. So the Son of God is the one who actively created. He's the active agent. He is the one who formed and fashioned all things from nothing as God spoke. The Father, you remember Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it said, God said, let there be light. And there was light. The creating and the forming and the fashioning of the light was through the Son. He made all things. God made everything through Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the three-in-one creator. That makes Christ the rightful one to be the heir of all things. To say it this way, he is the first, or the alpha, and he is the last. He is the omega. He is the beginning and the end. Christ is all in all. If you create it, it belongs to you. And so we have this one who is the first and the last, but we also have this one who stands in the center, in the middle. Go with me to verse 3. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We'll speak of that in a moment. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That word uphold is the idea of sustaining, of keeping. And how does the son do that? By his word, by his speaking, by his power. Christ upholds all things. He is the center of all things because he is the sustainer of all things. Just let your imagination run wild for here just a moment and think about the, the cosmos. Think about the galaxies, the universe. Every planet floats in its orbit. Every galaxy moves in its course. Every asteroid has its intention and direction and movement from the sun who sustains all things. There is not one star out of alignment. There is not one black hole that's in the wrong place. Everything sustained in the universe by the sun. And you bring it down into onto our planet, into our, our lives, and, and you start to think about the, the subatomic and the molecular levels, and you, you get every atom, every, every neutron and electron in its proper order and orbit, everything where it should be, everything sustained because the sun keeps it there by his word. All things great and small are sustained by the Son of God. Keeps it all in its course. Your very life itself is sustained and maintained and flourishes by Him. He gives you, He gives me, Lord willing, the very next breath to proclaim and to say, He is the first and the last and everything in between. Paul expressed it this way in Romans eleven thirty six. He said, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Catch that. For, for from him he has created all things. He is the first. And, and through him he sustains absolutely everything. And to him. The culmination and conclusion of all things. He is the heir of all things. To him be glory forever. Now this, friends, is a 
deeply definitive word about our lives. When, when the Son is spoken of here, when God is spoken to us by the Son, He is saying something very important about your day-to-day life. If all things have been made by the Son of God, and He is the heir of all things, all things belong to, to Him, and He is the very sustainer of all things, then what is your life for? Who do you belong to? You and I were created by the Son of God. We exist through the Son of God for the glory of the Son of God. Our our lives, everyday moments, are meant to be lived to demonstrate His excellence and value and glory and perfection. If you think about the, the ultimate purpose of God creating the universe, everything in it is that everything would celebrate and worship and adore the Son. This is a definitive statement about the purpose of your very life. Why do you live and breathe and move in this very moment now? Is it not to glorify Christ? Is it not to exalt Him with all that you have? Your life is from Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. And that's why Paul can say in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here, friends, is a purpose for us. The definitive word. So the job you work, do it for the glory of Christ. Your family, live for them and live for the glory of Christ among your family. Your neighbors, your community, live for the glory of Christ in your neighborhood, in your community. In your recreation and leisure, enjoy it for the glory of Christ. In everything you do, in all things, your purpose, my purpose, our purpose collectively is for the glory of Jesus Christ. That is a definitive word about our lives because Jesus is God's creating word. He's the sustainer. He is the culmination of all things. Is your life your own? Not at all. Live it. Christ, the beginning, the end, and the center. Jesus is God's creating world. Reason number two for us in seeing God's word in the Son as a definitive word is because Jesus is God's revealing word. Here we take a glimpse into Uh, into not just the purpose, but the person of the word. Jesus, as the creator and sustainer, gives him prominence, the definitive, ultimate word, but his nature, who he is, that, that shows why we should listen all the more, why we should pay much closer attention to Christ, to the word, simply because of who he is. Now, verse two, the preacher has told us the means uh, that God spoke by in the past wasn't a prophet, but in these last days, God has spoken to us not by a prophet, not by a rabbi, not by even an angel, but he has disclosed or revealed himself to us. He has spoken. His speech is absolute, complete, definitive, and that is because he is speaking to us by his son, by his son. Now, we, we have a very important relationship here to think about. 
Jesus, the Son of God, reveals God as a son reveals or shows his father. Now, that is not to say that Christ is inferior or subordinate to the Father in any way. No, no, the Son of God is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. The Son of God is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. The Son of God possesses all the divine nature and attributes of God, of the Father and the Spirit. He is fully and completely God. And yet, as a human being, he displays and shows us who God is. Verse 3 helps us with this. He says that he, Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, in saying in the first phrase that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the idea of radiance is it's shining out. It's beauty. It's majesty. It's, it's expressiveness. Christ shines out the glory of God. The the term here could be used as shining from within, but also reflective as well. I I think Christ does both. He is himself God, and so the light permeates from him. The glory of God comes from him. But he also reflects the majesty and the glory of the Father in his ministry. The distinct holiness and transcendent majesty of God, the Son possesses himself and exhibits fully in the world. And this is the mystery and the deep reality of the incarnation. That the Son of God became man in order to reveal and display God to us. But Jesus told his disciples, we saw last week, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But Jesus even told his disciples in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. If you by eyes of faith can perceive who Jesus is, you are seeing the nature, the character, the goodness, the majesty, and the glory of God in who he is. You know I like to suggest books to you uh, to pick up and to read, and and this one I would suggest if you get stuck on a deserted island, uh, just keep it with you. Uh, Have it there. This is John Owen and his little book, The Glory of Christ. He comments, he says, without Christ, we would have known nothing truly about God, for he would have been eternally invisible to us. We would have never seen God at any time, either in this life or in the next. But Christ the Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God, reveals God to us. Christ is the light shining the glory of God into the world. But he's also, the next phrase, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Here again, we see the equality of standing with God. He is fully God by the statement here, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, we get the word character from the Greek term here, exact imprint. Our English word character comes from that. But the idea here is the impression or the mark of a person's image made on a coin. So you think about a a quarter, And there's George Washington's face on it. It's the imprint of his image or his face there. Jesus displays, he is the image of the nature of God. That is, he shows God fully. The Son possesses the very nature of God. So all can see. He reveals God to us because he is fully God. So we can perceive God's revelation of himself. God has spoken through his son, and God is showing us, revealing to us through the son, who he is. Jesus is God's revealing word. Now again, I believe that this is a definitive, ultimate word spoken for us. 
And here's where it comes down. If, if you want to know God and to be known by God, you have to know Christ. There's no one else that can expose and, and reveal God to you. Christ alone ex- reveals God to us. This one focuses our spiritual and religious pursuits in this life to a very clear center and person. The person of Jesus Christ himself, if you know him, means that you know the Father. But if you don't know Christ, then you don't know God. Again, I want to bring clarity and light to your life. If you're here seeking spiritual wisdom and insight, maybe you have it in the back of your head that, All roads lead to God. Just choose a path, be sincere, and you'll get there. And yet, with this statement that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, he doesn't leave that option open to us. There is a clear, definitive truth here. Jesus is the truth. And no one comes to the Father apart from him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You you don't know God unless you know me. So we have to push against the, the conversation in our culture today that says, you have your truth, you have your truth, I'll have my truth, and we'll all just find it out. We'll all get there. It'll be all fine. But just choose your own adventure, life, and religion, and be sincere about it, and we'll have great spirituality, and we'll all make it. Friends, there is only one way to know God, and through, that is through the person of Jesus Christ. He came as a full human being to make God known. And he has come for you as a person to know and to relate to in order for you to draw near to him. He became man so that we would relate to him as a human being, so that we would speak to him, so that we would confess our need to him, so that we would draw near to him. Christianity is all about Christ. So you must come to him. You must come to Christ. You must come and learn from him, listen to him, walk with him, and be changed by him. There is no way to knowing God except through Jesus Christ alone. It's a definitive word for our life. God, God, Jesus is God's creating word. Jesus is God's revealing word. But this reality that Jesus is the revealing word of God, apart from Christ there is no other way, creates a problem for us. Uh, I, I, when I was an elementary age kid, you know, in the 80s, back then, the 1980s, um, I liked to, my favorite books to read were these books I found in the library at my school called Choose Your Own Adventure books, right? Do you remember some of those? You get to pick what happens. You read through a page, and then at the end of the page, it's like, I get to make the decision on whether I go to page 72 or I fall off the bridge and go to page 12. You know, like, whatever happens there. And I love those because I got to choose. We want our own will. We, are, we, we want our own independence. Isn't that what it means to be an American? The pursuit of life and liberty, do what I want, and happiness in my endeavors to get it, however we want to go about it. But that, friends, is the very thing that lands us in trouble. Every one of us doing their own thing, trying their own ways, We all end up making a mess of our lives and everything in the world because we're all seeking to be independent, authoritative people of ourselves. If we're honest, we're broken people living in a broken world. The reason that war and violence, hatred, destruction, and death even exist is because we have thrown off every ruler above us. 
even God himself, we have rejected. We have refused and rebelled against the one who has created us, the one who has rights over us as the creator and heir of all things, the, the creator and Lord. We have violated and broken God's law and defied God's glory. We have vandalized his name. Instead, we've chosen to be our own rulers, seeking to display our own glory. And the result of all of this, as the scriptures say, is God's righteous judgment against us that condemns us to death. We all deserve death because of our rebellion and our sin. It's what we call it. We need a better word than the word of violence and murder and hatred and death that hangs over us because of our sin. And we have a better word. We have a better word, and this is reason three Jesus is the ultimate word because Jesus is God's saving word. Jesus is God's saving word. The text simply tells us what Jesus did at the end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, I mean, that's just a straightforward statement. I mean, it's, I think it's the gospel in, in five or six words. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's declarative. It's definitive. He made purification for our sins. And the image here is, is the image of the ritual sacrifice and purification rites of the temple in Jerusalem. This, this is called the letter to the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, because the author is writing it to a predominantly Jewish context. They would have understood the temple rituals and, and scenario there. So each year on the Day of Atonement, the people would bring a pure, spotless lamb. And that lamb was sacrificed. It was slaughtered before God as a substitute. They would lay their hands on that lamb and then they would slit its throat and the blood would run out and they would sacrifice it to God as an act of faith, as it were transferring their sins to that animal. It was an act of faith in God's word that he would forgive sins. But this writer tells us that Jesus himself is the one who has made purification for sins. That's the mystery and the glory of, of the incarnation, that he became a human to stand in our place to suffer our fate, to, to be our sacrifice for our sins, to take our curse upon himself. A little bit later in this book, in Hebrews 9, the writer says, As it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice, not of a lamb, not of a goat or a bull, but by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to, to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear at a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And this is the good news that Christ has suffered and died for you and me, and the day is coming when he will come again, and he will come and he will save us, save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He stood in our place, gave his life on our behalf, and was raised bodily again on the third day. And he did this in love towards you and me. His mercy and grace is there. 
came and offered himself once to bear the sins of many in love. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, stated it this way. He said, for we were the purpose of his embodiment. And for our salvation, he so loved human beings as to come and appear in a human body. So he has today, Hebrews 1.3, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He, Christ, laid down his life on your behalf, suffered and died for your sins and your rebellion and my own. He died for our sins, and now today, He has been raised to life again, and there he sits at the right hand of the Father in high, seated and exalted above all things, where he has all dominion, all majesty, all glory, all power forever and ever. He is seated because his work is finished. He never needs suffer again for our sins. His work is complete. It is done. And he stands as King of kings and Lord of lords over all things. He has even a greater name than the angels. He, the Son of God, has a much excellent name than theirs. That's why we don't need a word from an angel or a prophet or a burning bush. We have the Son of God seated, the Most High, the Son of God who made purification for sins, who speaks that saving word to us. His superiority is over all things. And once again, this is a definitive word for our lives. His creative word gives us purpose. His revealing word gives us a person. And his his saving word here gives us purification. You see, here we see Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior. And it's his work that saves us. It is his completed, finished, definitive, ultimate work of becoming a human being and dying on the cross for us and our salvation. Way of salvation is through Christ alone. You may have been told that if you do enough good things, if you're a kind person, if you do good deeds enough, that that will be enough, that God will accept you because of the good things that you do. Or, or maybe you've been told that, that religious penance and religious devotion will, will put you back in God's good graces somehow or another that this is by observing certain certain sacraments and doing certain religious things that you'll somehow be able to balance the scales of your bad with religious good. The problem is we look at the bad side and we go, well, the scales are down, but they're just mistakes. They're just accidents. They're just, you know, little white lies when the scripture says that they are rebellion, transgression, sin. They're death. We cannot balance the scales by enough religious penance. Or, even worse, we're led to believe that it's all not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. It'll get sorted out in the end. And all you have to do is approach life like trying to outrace an angry grizzly bear. You're confused. Do you know how to outrace an angry grizzly bear? Do you know how to get beyond an angry grizzly bear? No? Just make sure you're always running with somebody who's a little bit slower than you. That's the spirituality of this world. We'll just show up to God and we'll be like, I'm not as bad as that guy. Just identify someone who's worse than you. The problem is all of it leads to death. All of it. 
Yet Christ has answered it all, once and for all, in his incarnation, his sinless life, and his sacrificial death. He is the one who proclaimed from the cross, it is finished. So how are you saved? This is the answer that I hope everyone here gets right. You are not saved by anything you can do. You don't bring an ounce of help to yourself in your salvation. All you do is show up with your sin. It's only, we are only saved by the work Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's only his work and his alone, none of your own. Nobody else can help you with it either. It's Christ and Christ alone. And all you do is receive his work by, your, by, by faith, by trusting in him, by placing your own faith and trust completely in him. It is by faith that you are saved, by depending on Christ and his work alone as your salvation. We have to trust the saving word of God, Jesus the Son, as the definitive word about salvation. There is no other way to be saved except Christ and Christ alone. So friends, I would ask you today, are you trusting your good works? Are you trusting your deeds? Are you trusting you're not as bad as the guy behind you? Or are you trusting Christ? Will you be able to say when you stand before Father on Judgment Day, will you be able to say, I've got nothing good myself but I'm pleading the cross of Jesus Christ. It's his work and his work alone to save me. Because that is where your salvation is found. Jesus is the ultimate word for our salvation. Now here's why this is all good news. We have an ultimate, definitive, clear word from God. He has spoken. And he has spoken in the best, most explicit, deep way he could ever speak. Through his son. The question is, are you listening to his ultimate word? Do you hear God's ultimate word? Is, is Christ the purpose of your life? Is Christ the person of your life? And is Christ the purification for your life? Because God has spoken through him, the son. So friends, take up Christ and listen to him. Let God's definitive, ultimate world, word describe your reality, frame your life with truth, and push you into a future full of life and hope and joy forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking. Thank you for speaking your word through your son. You've revealed yourself. You've communicated yourself with us through Christ. So may we not neglect him. May we pay close attention to the Son of God. May our lives be clearly framed and, and lived for his glory because of who he is and what he has done for us. Thank you for giving us a better word than the word of this world. Grow our hearts of faith and trust in you, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.